us this morning to First Peter chapter one. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and they'll get one into your hands. It's always great to hear the word of God, even better to hear it and to uh, look right down on the printed page and see it with your own eyes. It has a deeper impact upon our lives as a result. And so just wave to them. They'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of First Peter we come to First Peter chapter 1, a single verse this morning, verse 13. Peter writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he said, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this verse. We thank you for all that is bound up in it, all the things that you want to take by your Holy Spirit off of the printed page and to bring into our mind and into our hearts and to give it a working daily place in each one of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for what this verse is going to accomplish in us supernaturally by your spirit this morning. We surrender ourselves to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear and receive your instruction and your encouragement today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for making us your workmanship, your constant fashioning of our lives, Lord, into something beautiful, into the image of Christ. And we notice that progress, Lord. We're grateful for it. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that this letter was written by the Apostle Peter to Christians who were either currently in the middle of great, great suffering or for whom suffering was fast approaching. And Peter wrote this letter to them in order to provide them with three things that are very, very vital to us as Christians when we're in a season of deep trial or difficulty in order to provide them with three things. Number one, with encouragement from God. Number two, with perspective that comes only from God. And number three, with practical instruction on how we're to conduct ourselves and our decision making in the middle of the, the trial that we find ourselves in. And we notice that in verses 1 through 6, Peter encouraged us and them by reminding us of all of the priceless blessings that are ours in Christ because of our faith in Jesus. And that all of these blessings are sure, they're unshakable, they're immovable because they lie beyond the reach of any physical circumstance we find ourselves in in this life. Nothing can touch them. Nothing can topple them. Nothing can make them totter or weaken in any way. These blessings are always ours in their full strength all of the time. And then in verses 7 through 12, he provided us with a godly perspective for times of suffering by reminding us that God overrules all suffering that we encounter in this fallen world, at whatever its source, 
And he is faithful to work it together for good in order to make it serve his uh, good and perfect and acceptable purposes related to our lives. He never allows any circumstance or trial to have the final say in our life or to ultimately do any damage to us. He overrules it always to make us more like Christ and more heavenly minded. And now from verse 13 all the way to the end of the book, Peter gives us good, solid, practical instruction on a very, very wide variety of subjects in order to help us navigate our times of trial, in order that we, things that, um, to stay alert to in our lives and uh, things to be aware of in order to avoid bad decision making. When we fall into deep trial or into deep suffering where you get, you can even get disoriented, you can get confused. And, uh, and oftentimes what comes out of that is we begin to make all kinds of crazy decisions, bad decision making occurs, and it only disturbs to make the trial or the difficulty uh, that much harder. And so he begins, I think, at a very interesting place in this regard of, of giving us good practical instruction. He begins by instructing us in verse 13 concerning our minds, that is, concerning our thinking. And Peter knows that once our hearts have been encouraged so that they don't fall into hopelessness or into despair as a result of the trial, and he's already done that in the letter, now he knows that the next big thing that needs to be addressed is our mind, our thinking. And so he tells us, to gird up the loins of your mind. Now, the first time, this may be the first time you've ever heard that before. Reading the Bible, I think, what in the world does that mean? And uh, I'm here to muddy the water for you uh, this morning. Girding up the loins of your minds, or girding up your loins, that was an ancient figure of speech. And Everyone that Peter that read this epistle from Peter would have known exactly what he was referring to uh, in those days. But in our modern Western world, I think it requires a little bit of an explanation. In those days, uh, when you went into your closet in the morning to look to what put on, you would have a closet that would have some number of robes in it. Everybody wore robes and they were long. They were ankle length robes as opposed to shirts and pants, which we do in this culture. The robe would be bound at the waist by a belt of some kind. And thus, when a man uh, was required of a man to run for some particular reason, he wouldn't run with his robe all the way down at his ankles because that gave you the potential for your sandals to get caught in it, to trip and to fall and to just make matters worse. So what he would do is he would take his robe and he would reach down all the way down here and he would bring it up through his belt. And instantly he'd be wearing a pair of baggy shorts or for ladies, a pair of culottes. Uh, so this is what would happen. And now uh, as he would transform that robe into basically a pair of shorts, he knew that he could run now without being uh, tripped up by the loose ends of his robe. And this imagery is as old as the time of Moses, when 
God spoke to Moses just before the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said to them through Moses, and thus you shall eat, speaking of the Passover, with a belt on your waist, others ready to gird up uh, your uh, loins, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So God said, I want you to eat this Passover and be ready to move by girding up your loins and move they did from Egypt on their way to the promised land. Now, Peter takes this imagery and he applies it to our minds, to our thinking as Christians. In other words, as Christians, our thinking always needs to be tight. It always needs to be uncluttered and it really needs to be disciplined. But it is especially critical during times of deep trials So that we don't end up falling over our bad thinking and falling on our faces. When we're in times of deep trial, it's vital that our thinking and thus our decision making doesn't end up being loose and random and undisciplined and worst of all, emotional. Uh, but that it is that is dominated by our emotions rather than our minds. And of course, during times of trial, it is very easy to become highly emotional and to become highly emotional in our uh, decision making. And and, uh, the result is very poorly thought out decisions which only serve to make the trial unnecessarily longer and harder and more painful. But how in the world do we gird up the loins of our mind as Christians? We do it by making sure that our mind or our thinking is kept right in line with the word of God, to make sure that our thinking reflects the word of God. It's a mind, this girded up mind, is a mind that tests what comes into it by the word of God. The fact of the matter, there's all kinds of do you have do you have crazy thoughts come into your mind on a daily basis? I hope I'm not alone. All kinds of thoughts come into my mind in the course of uh, of a day. And it's especially true when we're in uh, trials and in difficulty. All kinds of thoughts come into our minds. And uh, many of those thoughts are not worthy of remaining there, much less being acted upon. There's the old saying, just because a bird lands on my head doesn't mean I have to let it build a nest there. And that's the truth about thoughts. Just because a thought comes into my mind doesn't mean I allow it to continue in my mind and go on about its business uh, there. So Peter declares... Uh, describes a mind which allows uh, only what matches the word of God to stay and then takes captive anything that's contrary to the word of God and throws it out. Peter, Paul writes the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, this physical body, he said, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And then here it is. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience 
of Christ. And he's describing as Peter is a disciplined mind. And a disciplined mind is one that tests every thought and every emotion by the word of God. Because we cannot ultimately trust our thoughts and our emotions and certainly not in times of deep trial. We don't trust our decision making at times like that. And so we want all emotions, all uh, thoughts to be tested by the word of God. We say, how in the world does that uh, operate? Well, when we find ourselves in a deep trial, one of the emotions or one of the thoughts that can really fill our minds is fear. So here I am, this great uh, difficulty comes into my life and my mind and my heart are absolutely gripped by fear. Now, that's real. That's not unusual at all related to our lives. And so fear grips me and what this girded up uh, the loins of my mind, how it responds to that is I put that fear to the test of God's word. And I realize that it doesn't meet the standard of God's word. So I take that thought captive as a thought that is unworthy of a child of God who has a heavenly father as we do. I'm not going to let that thought build a nest in my mind. It's not worthy of remaining in my mind in light of our God and his promises. So I take that thought captive and I cast it out of my mind. And so sometimes it can be uh, just uh, coupled with a prayer to the Lord. Uh, you have, do you find yourself just kind of talking to the Lord? <laughs> Not, some people are external processors and some people aren't. But I think that the older you get, the more you talk out loud. Uh, whether you're talking to anybody or not, you just external process a little bit. And so sometimes that thought comes in and it's not worthy of continuing there, say the thought of fear. And you say, Lord, I reject this temptation to be defend, uh, dominated by fear. It is exalting itself against the knowledge of God. It is exalting itself against what I know to be true about you and your word. And so I take it captive. I cast it out of my mind as something that's defiling, something that's unworthy of my life. I commit this fear to you, Lord, and I choose to believe your word, which tells me that you will supply all of my needs according to your riches in glory. And that's how it, ha that's how it operates. And, it, and then you can take not only fear, but discouragement or despair or anger or hatred, or bitterness, or doubt, or confusion, uh, all of these kinds of things, and deal with it in the same way. Somebody says, well, you know, I tried that one time, and the fear came back. <laughs> you were you flunked. No, it's join the crowd. So the fear comes back. How do we handle it the second time? The same way we handled it the first time. I throw it out, and I throw it out with the same prayer. And if you have to do that 60 times an hour to start, then that's how often you do it. But you'll find tomorrow you're only doing it 30 times an hour. And the next day, 15 times an hour. And the next day, five times an hour. And then pretty soon, it's just an occasional thing that you're having to do as it relates to, to, to fear. 
And in the course of addressing these things, girding up the loins of our mind, we're developing something very, very valuable in the Christian life and becomes really valuable to us in times of suffering. And it's called the disciplined mind, testing every thought, every emotion, every decision by the word of God, because only God's word can be trusted. I think how many of you realize that? Where you're just in that place and your head is swimming and what's going to happen and this and that. And all of a sudden, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm a very proactive person on, on situations. I'm very solution-oriented and uh, I know how to take something on and drive it somewhere. And so the tendency can be for someone like me to just start to make decisions in all directions and one of them will stick. You know, one of them will, will work. And, uh, but pretty soon, you know, ultimately you hit the trial, uh, any trial really, but certainly hit the trial where you say, I don't trust my judgment here. I'm afraid of what I'm capable of here. I'm afraid of making one, two, three, four decisions that affect people in all directions or throw away a lifetime of work or a lifetime of a Christian witness. And so the distrust of self makes us pull back and say, all right, Lord, I want every emotion, every thought, every decision to be dominated by your word because I'm not safe right now. Now, all of this is so vital to not stumbling and falling unnecessarily during times of trial, uh, but it's also to mark all of our thinking as Christians. So this isn't just something where we say, oh, yeah, when I get in a trial, maybe I'll do that. That's what we're supposed to be doing on a regular basis in our lives. And if we make this the characteristic of our daily lives, testing everything by the word of God, what matches the word stays, praise the Lord. What doesn't match goes out, praise the Lord. Then what happens is we've already established a disciplined mind as a characteristic of our life so that when the trials come, we're not trying to put this in place at the same time. It's already there now to simply apply to a bigger, harder situation that we find ourselves in. When God's word is dominating our thinking and thus as a result our decision making, we can be confident, Peter is saying, that there won't be any loose ends or any unforeseen complications that are going to arise up that we're going to trip over like that proverbial robe. And thus we have the confidence that our lives are going to hold together and not fall apart upon us in the middle of this trial. And I'll tell you, that's a very valuable confidence at times like this. As my thinking, my emotions, my decision-making is, is dominated, dictated by the Word of God, then I have that peace of knowing I am on a safe road in the middle of this situation. And I'll tell you, that's a very, very priceless uh, realization to have in our hearts. Now, Peter also tells us that we are to be sober. Not only are we to have a disciplined mind, but we're to have a sober Mind. Now, when we speak of somebody being sober in this culture, uh, we use it, use it typically to describe someone who isn't inebriated or isn't under the influence of alcohol. And certainly it's important for us not to be uh, drunks as Christians. But Peter here broadens this 
not living under the influence to include not coming under the influence of our trial or of our circumstances. And so Peter is speaking of the result our biblical thinking will have upon our lives practically. He says will produce a sober mind. Now when we say sober, it doesn't mean somber. Like we've just been sucking on lemons to get our Christian face on in the world or like the Pharisees would do when they would, you know, whenever they were in any kind of fasting or this or that, they would do whatever they could do to make it look like they were just, you know, really under everything because of what they were, you know, their fasting. They wanted everybody to know it. And they and they viewed that as kind of a mark of spirituality. I think one of the good things that has happened maybe in the last 30 years in Christianity is people have cheered up a little bit, I think. Um, Sometimes you couldn't smile or you couldn't joke or you couldn't, you know, poke someone in the arm or something like that and and without, you know, being considered unserious about our faith. And so it doesn't mean somber. Uh, That isn't, you know, enjoyless. Uh, Sober speaks of being, the word literally means being calm and collected in spirit, to be steady, to be even keeled and self-controlled in the best sense of the word. In other words, we don't allow the trial to rock us from one extreme to the other emotionally and, uh, and mentally in, in the trial. And here is the person, this sober person. This is the person who recognizes that fear and worry and a whole host of other emotions produced by difficult circumstances, they're intoxicating. They will, those emotions will take us under the influence or under the control of them as effectively as alcohol will. In, in someone who is drinking. And so this person recognizes that fear and worry, all of these other emotions that can be produced by difficult circumstances, they're intoxicating and, and they distort our vision and they distort our judgments. And thus, they don't allow their circumstances to dictate how they view life or how to affect how they conduct themselves in life. And so... For instance, they refuse to allow difficult circumstances to drown out all joy in their life. Uh, They refuse to allow difficult circumstances to make them unpleasant company uh, to be around. There's still a joy to be around. And they realize that if they only experience joy and are pleasant to be around when everything is going great, then they'll only be joyous and pleasant to be around for relatively short periods of time in life in this uh, fallen world. And so the sober-minded person in this context that Peter's talking about is one who chooses to live a Christ-like life of joy and peace and hope and love despite their circumstances. And sometimes trials can go on for a very, very long period of time and uh, uh, but our joy and our hope filled perspective is never supposed to become a casualty ever of any trial that we're in. 
And sometimes in this culture we'll say, uh, hey, how you doing? And somebody will respond by saying, well, pretty good under the circumstances. And I don't want to make a mountain out of this, but I don't think any Christian should respond in that way. Well, pretty good under the circumstances. Because the fact of the matter is we aren't supremely under our physical circumstances. Because above any physical circumstance that we find ourselves in is a greater spiritual circumstance, the greater reality that Peter comes to in the next, uh, next here in verse uh, 13. That Jesus is coming back for us. We're on our way to heaven. And as we rest our hope fully, he says, on that great truth, we will always have a cause for joy in our lives and a cause for pleasantness, uh, whatever my lesser circumstances. And so this is what he's saying when he calls on us to be sober. Then he closes here by uh, saying we're to set our hope fully upon the fact of Jesus's return for us. In other words, we need to think about Jesus a lot in trials, always, but in trials. And we need to think about heaven a lot as Christians, looking forward to Jesus's return. Peter gives that as a great and compelling motive for endurance through uh, difficulties in life. Let me just read you some verses from God's word which speak of heaven and uh, the very real influence that it is to have upon our lives presently. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Christ is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on things on the earth, Jesus declared in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then here's the gist of it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It keeps us heavenly minded. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He said, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Here's one of my favorite verses about heaven. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. The Apostle Paul wrote in this vein in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He said, for I reckon, I reckon. You didn't know he came from the Ozarks, did you? He said, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, that's what Peter's talking about. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. 
That word reckon is an interesting one. God didn't just put it in there so I could make fun of it. The word reckon means to weigh carefully. It means to put in the balance. And Paul is saying you can take all of the difficulty in life and put it on one side of the balance. And you can take all of the glory that awaits us in heaven and put it on the other side of the balance. And he said the one is not worthy to be compared with the other. You say, well, who made Paul the big expert? God. (laughs) He made him an expert in suffering in a way most of us don't envy him. And he also made him an expert in heaven. Concerning his suffering and trial, he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, are they Hebrews, those that were attacking him? He said, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? He said, I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. That's one of my nightmares. I'm not a water person. Three times shipwrecked in fulfilling God's call upon his life. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the cities, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides All the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches. Put all that on one side of the scale. And then concerning the glory, he said, that same 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, he said, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He said, I know a man in Christ, speaking of himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, whether out of the body, I don't know, whether it was a vision or I was actually taken up into heaven. He said, I don't know. God knows. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I'm not repeating the verse. He repeats it. So he's so impacted by what he saw. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which are not lawful for a man to utter. If he said, if I tried to describe heaven to you, I'd mar it. So I'm not going to do it. He said, you can take the one and put it on the one side. And he knew suffering. And the glory of heaven, the revelation of Christ on the other side. And he said, they're not even worthy to be mentioned in the same breath. To be spoken of in the same sentence. No comparison between the two. In Hebrews chapter 12, the book of Hebrews was written to suffering saints as well. The writer puts it this way. He said, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And for our purposes this morning, looking unto Jesus, 
the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And here we are told that the most encouraging place that we can put our focus in the midst of suffering is upon Jesus. And one of the blessings of looking upon Jesus is to notice what he set his focus on in the midst of his great suffering, the cross, and he set his focus on the joy of heaven on the other side of the cross. That's where he set his focus. The glory of heaven on the other side of the suffering. So to do this is to be like Christ. And that same joy that Jesus set his focus on, that same joy awaits us. Jesus never lost sight of the fact that this world was not his home, but that heaven was his home. And we need these reminders in scriptures to remind us that this is not home. Our flesh fights against it and the best of us forget it. As long as we are in this world as Christians, we are not home. And so when I try to make it home, I am endeavoring to make it what it can never be. So I set myself up for continual disappointment. This world is not our home. Heaven is our home. If we place those expectations upon this life that can only be rightly applied to heaven, perfection, no more sorrows, no more tears, no more problems, no more death, then as I said, we're going to set ourselves up for great disappointment. Heaven is heaven. This world is this world, and they are not one and the same. I really enjoy Vance Havner, uh, his quote. If you, you ever can go online and just stream, go to Sermon Index or wherever they've got Vance Havner's sermons, everybody ought to hear Vance uh, Havner at least once. He's long ago been with the, gone to be with the Lord. But he said, Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven but citizens of heaven making their way through this world. Just think about that for a moment. It's easy just to hear it and say, yes, I'm sure that's clever if I could understand what he was saying. Citizens, Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven. I would venture to say most Christians live there. That we consider ourselves citizens of earth on our way to heaven. And we pay a terrible price for that thinking. Terrible ups and downs and back and forth and all for that kind of thinking because it's unbiblical thinking. Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven, but citizens of heaven making their way through this world. I remember as a youth um, hearing a song and... Uh, and I'm so glad to have had it sewn into my life at some time, for the Lord brings it to my remembrance every so often. This is something like, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My uh, treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home. 
in this world anymore. And it's, it's true. And, and God works us through that in life, and that becomes a great, great comfort to us in trial. Well, someone might say that none of this helps me. Uh, Bible passages about heaven, they don't comfort me at all. Well, if Bible passages about heaven don't comfort me at all, it simply means that heaven isn't real for you yet. And perhaps heaven isn't real for you yet because you don't even think remotely enough about heaven and to the degree that God intends us to be thinking about heaven and Jesus and his soon return for us. And the fact of the matter is most of us don't. And I'll tell you, we pay a terrible price for it. And this is one of the things that Peter's trying to help us avoid in this letter. It's a very sad but true thing that the better we have it on earth, and we've had it pretty good in the United States of America for a hundred years, the sad but true truth is the better we have it on earth, the less we think about heaven. But the harder things get here, the more we think about heaven. And I think that sooner or later, for most of us as Christians, this fallen world will ultimately produce enough trials and enough suffering and enough disappointments that it will produce within each one of us a great longing for heaven and a regular thinking about heaven and the Lord's return. I think there are two great things that come together to take our focus and, and, and our, our citizenship here in this earth and to cause it to pale in comparison to thinking about heaven. And that is the longer we walk with the Lord and the more precious he becomes to us, the deeper we grow in our relationship with him. When that great truth over here on the one hand and then the difficulties that we face in life. And sometimes you can have people who are uh, 18, 20, 25 years old and they've hit more difficulties in life than the average 50-year-old. But in general, the younger you are, you haven't faced a lot of those things. And there comes this point where this great, increasing, beautiful love for God is working on our hearts on the one hand, and then life begins to be filled with disappointment and pain and difficulties and loss. And pretty soon we have more friends in heaven than we have left here and the earth. And a lot of different things happen. And over time, these two things come together in our lives. And ultimately, they produce a great, great longing for heaven and a longing for the return of the Lord to receive us into that heaven. And I think a person can honestly say in a room like this, and I think that um, where especially if you're younger or, or, you know, maybe growing in a relationship with the Lord or the relationship with the Lord has been neglected, someone might honestly say, I don't have that longing for heaven yet. Just hold on. 
it's coming. And again, the deepening of my personal relationship with the Lord. And then at the same time, in a greater measure, experiencing the difficulty and the fallenness of this world works together to produce that longing for heaven. And for most of us, as, as that, uh, that's how it comes together in our lives. I like Alfred's uh, translation of verse 13, where uh, uh, he puts it, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and he said, Rest your hope fully upon the grace which is even now bearing down on you. <laughs> so it's coming fast. Praise the Lord. The earth and, and our time here might give way to heaven today, the rapture of the church, and that's good to realize at any time, but certainly in times of great suffering. Now, um, I'm fully aware. Uh, I'm a pastor, and uh, I know what's going on in the world around me. Uh, pretty well informed. And I'm also pretty well informed in what's happening in professing Christianity uh, in the world as well. And I know that there's great pressure today to make church services and Sunday morning services and messages and this kind of thing perky and happy and upbeat and uh, never dealing with anything hard. Everybody has to be leave happy and talking about the jokes that were told and the whole, you know, the whole, this is the whole vibe and the pressure is just absolutely immense today to be conformed into all of that. But one of the things that I like about going through a book on a Sunday morning, the way we are here with First Peter, you just go straight through it is because you hit everything and, and anything in the book, subjects and passages we might not otherwise teach on, but they're so vital to our Christian lives. If we don't deal with things that don't cause us to leave the sanctuary clicking our ruby slippers, but we leave... And we've been given something to think about and to process with God and something that is true and something that needs to be developed within our lives and that the Holy Spirit is endeavoring to, to develop within our lives. If we don't leave with, with that kind of a thing happening in our lives, at least some of the time, then you end up with Christians who have completely wrong expectations about Christianity and about life, and then they are completely unprepared when the difficulty comes, and the difficulty does come in life. So passages like this are important. And if there's any of us, one, two, five, where you look and said, I could have gone to some place where the pastor rides his Harley up the front and then he gives the message and he's got the smoke machines going behind. How will that help you when your mom and your dad die? Or you lose your job. Or you lose a child. Or these things that just happen in this 
world or you find yourself in the middle of a spiritual warfare that you never even believed could possibly exist. Now, we need the meat of the word. We need the perspective, the deep perspective that the word of God brings into our lives. Someday. All of this will end. We won't have to face it in heaven, but we're not in heaven yet. And so Peter teaches us, and I think pricelessly, times of trial, difficulty, suffering are times for clear thinking. And that occurs as we possess a disciplined mind and a sober mind and as a mind that is dominated by Jesus and by heaven. That's a good word. And that's a needed word in our lives. For Christians any time in human history, but certainly today as well. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Father, that you know exactly what we need from you. You have compassion on us. You understand more than we even understand what it is that we are in the middle of in the great gulf of the difference of reality that is between the portion of what we live now and what awaits us in heaven. And we thank you for this priceless instruction, Lord, to protect our minds and our thinking and thus our decision making in the midst of great trials. Thank you for including it in your book. Thank you for the privilege of being able to study it this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name.